Amen. What are you doing here in the middle of the week? Pretty good? Praising Jesus? Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11. We'll pick up in verse 14. Now we have the seventh trumpet that's going to sound. And so this seventh trumpet is also the final uh, of the three woes. And again, remember that the things that we read in the book of Revelation, though not strictly sequential, build one on top of another. And so tonight, this scene where God finally says... I'm done. You see, the world as we know it today is not only under the influence, but actually under the leadership of our enemy, Satan. It's a temporary situation, and it's a limited situation, but it nonetheless is the case. And in fact, as we fight our spiritual fight, those battles that we wage, that war that we're in is against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, this current age. The age that is in one sense, the age of grace, and on the other hand is the enemy at work in this world, the world having been turned over to him in the garden. When Adam sinned, scripture says all sinned. And so we live in a day and time that's at the end, I believe, of the age of grace. We don't know when that trumpet's going to sound and we're taken home to heaven. But we know this, God's word is clear and it is also true that there will be an end to God's allowance of sin. He will one day say, that's it, this is the last one. And that day, I believe, is on the horizon. And so tonight, Revelation 11, verses 14 to 19, and the seventh trumpet. Let's pray. Father, we are again just grateful that you have given us a vision of what lies ahead. There is no need for a single person in this room to worry about their future. Because your word plainly declares that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you are still standing at the door and knocking, and anyone who opens the door, you will come in and sup. And so, God, we ask tonight, if there's anyone here and they're fraught with fear, maybe the crash of the stock market, the world stage as we see it set, has them worried. God, would you give them the hope of heaven? Lord, we ask that you would now speak to us through your word. Give it clarity, sense, meaning, strengthen us, Lord, to receive it and encourage us by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 14, the second woe is now past, and behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And remember that all throughout the book of Revelation, in a general sense, when you see the word quickly, it's in relation to the events that are in the last days, not quickly in the sense of time because these words were written 2,000 years ago. So in that sense, these words were written 2,000 years ago. If you meant quickly like it's going to happen 10 seconds from now, uh, that would be inaccurate, but quickly in relationship to all of the other things described. 
So when the first trumpet sounds and the second trumpet sounds, by the time the third trumpet sounds, it's going to sound quickly in relationship to all of the other things that have been described in the book of Revelation. And so it will happen like that. And the reason this principle is so important for you to understand as we study the book of Revelation is people often come to the wrong conclusion when they see that word and they think of it in relationship to 2,000-year-old words. They're going, well, that's not very quick. God is patient, and he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is long-suffering, so do not confuse his long-suffering with a lack of action. But when he gets to that place to where he has said, look, you, you've, Satan, you've had your day. Choice has been active now for thousands of years. Mankind has had its ability to do whatever it wants. We've messed up the planet. We've destroyed lives. We have ruined people. The humankind is not exactly a pretty picture looking back over the course of human history. It's been fraught with war since day one. It's been fraught with murder since the second, third, and fourth people came to this planet, right? You see, once you had Adam, you had Eve, you had the next person, you've got Cain and Abel, and they kill one another. You know, it's that bad. That's what sin does. And so God now, looking at time from that perspective, says these things. And then the seventh angel sounded, the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, the Lord, and of his Christ. And so as you read that, you initially are struck by the S at the end of kingdom. In the best manuscripts, it is actually singular, but because in our world we have many kingdoms, I believe that the Lord simply uh, allows that word to be plural because when you think of the kingdoms of this world, there's lots of them, amen? We could say there's a kingdom of the United States of America and there's a kingdom of Russia and there's a kingdom of sub-Saharan Africa and there's a kingdom that's communist and there's a kingdom that's socialist. There's lots of kingdoms. And so the plurality in one place is simply translated to the next. But know this, as far as God's concerned, there's one kingdom. And actually in the best manuscripts, it's singular. But we would have a tough time translating from the kingdoms, plural of the world, to the kingdom. That almost doesn't make sense. And so for sake of understanding, the translators have left an S on both of them. But the kingdoms of this world. You see, man thinks that he has it all nailed, doesn't he? We think that we control our own destiny. We can do great things, there's no doubt about it. Look at some of the buildings that are under construction around the world. If you've ever looked at the Burj Al Dubai and you look at this building that's nearly a half mile in the air. That's crazy, it's twice the height of the Empire State Building. And it's in sand. It's not a good place to build things that you don't want to topple over. Yeah, we can do some great things. Oh, we also created nerve gas and VX, atomic weapons. We've slaughtered millions upon millions of people, most of them innocent. We've bombed innocent women and children. 
Murders happen every single day by the tens of thousands all over the world. You see, it's not actually as pretty a picture as we might make it out to be. Most people go to bed hungry, not full. So the kingdoms of this world will one day be given back to the rightful deed holder to this planet, Jesus. And he will bring his singular kingdom to pass. Notice it says, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the attention now goes to heaven and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell to their faces and worshiped God saying, and what comes really is a song of praise and at the same time it's a song of acknowledgement. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty. And notice now the I am comes into view, the one who was, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. You see, Christ has not taken his great power yet and reigned on this earth. He's not done that. He came as the humble high priest of heaven the first time. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He gave his life a ransom for many. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we were healed. He was murdered, put in a grave, raised three days later, spent 40 days on this earth, and then he went to heaven. But he did not reign while he's on this earth. He never set up the finality of his kingdom. He's entitled to it, and the earth is his. He paid the price. His life for ours, cumulative, all of mankind. The price has been paid. The ransom has been offered and accepted. Remember, Father God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God accepted the sacrifice of his own son. He said, it is finished, it's done. So Christ is the rightful deed holder to this planet. But he has not yet taken ownership. It's as if he had made a down payment, and scripture really says that the Holy Spirit is a type of down payment, an engagement ring. It's a promise of that which is future. And so as the Holy Spirit is in us, it signifies that this world actually belongs to Christ. And so like you would make a down payment, maybe on a house or a car, or during Christmas season, you, you, know, you go into Target and you put a few bucks down and you save that bicycle you want to give to your children. And then you go and make payments and it's actually paid for, but you actually don't get it until you go pick it up, amen? Until you move into the house. Christ has not moved into his house yet. He's in his mansion in heaven, but this earth is his. And so in that sense, the kingdom that's being spoken of, the one that will be set up and will last a thousand years on this earth, is still yet future. Because you've not taken, you have taken now, you will take that great power and reign. The nations were angry. And your wrath has come. Those two things are in direct odds with one another. The nations being angry. The world shaking its fist at God. The world 
doing whatever it wants. And finally, God will say, enough. No more. And his wrath will come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And so this goes all the way from the battle of Armageddon, his second coming. When his wrath is poured out, the wrath of the Lamb comes all the way to the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. You see, because right now, there's no one that's actually in hell yet. They're in Sheol. They're still, those who are unrighteous are still awaiting that final judgment and will do so until the thousand years is over. Believers to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But for those who are not saved, it gets worse, way worse. Because God will finally judge and he will mete out the punishment that is due those who have rebelled against him. He has actually not even done that for those who have already passed. They're still waiting that time. The time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. And remember that during the time of the tribulation, there will be people who will be saved, they will prophesy, and they will be saints as you are tonight. If you're here tonight and you are in Jesus Christ, praise God, you are a saint. That's what the Bible declares. You may have not known that you're Saint Kevin. You may have not known. But you are. You are saints. Sanctified, set apart once. And those who fear your name, the small and the great. God looks at the things that we do, we're going to be rewarded. Be given crowns, literally, for those things which are done in this body. There is a Bema seat, there's a judgment seat for those things which we have done. And God will reward those. And whether you're on the short end of the, whether you've got one crown or a stack of them. And so you see this contrast between the rewards for those who have served the Lord, loved the Lord, know the Lord, and the punishment for those who do not and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And so now you can see as the scene unfolds, the 24 elders have bowed down before the Lord and they're praising, it's time, you're going to do what you said you would always do, we have believed you, it's on its way, it's happening, the temple was opened, the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. Some people often ask, where is the ark of the covenant? We're actually told in Revelation it's in heaven. How it got there, I don't know. God is God. But it's seen in heaven. I do believe it's coming back to earth. So all the digging around the Temple Mount probably isn't going to locate it because it ain't there. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. And so this picture, as these judgments begin to unfold, remember the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and what will follow, the seven bowl judgments, all give us a different perspective of the time that we really call that final three and a half years of the great tribulation. The Antichrist has broken his covenant that he made with Israel. The temple has been rebuilt. 
There's been worship going on in it. That worship now is, is ceased. The Antichrist has set himself up to be worshipped in that temple. The two witnesses have been outside. Just so, hey, false god. They've been killed. They laid in the streets for three and a half days. They've now been resurrected. They're off to heaven. And all of these things unfold on the earth. God has been gracious and kind and long-suffering, and he does these things. Now imagine these things happening even in our day and time of technology to where you're seeing things in real time globally. There are those news crews, as I said, filming, you know, there, there's, there'll be the, you know, the witness cam. And they'll be preaching out in the street every day, and so you'll be able to go on, and all of a sudden they're murdered, and they lay in the street, and then boom, they pop back up. And the whole world is going, what is going on? And then the Antichrist shows his colors, and all hell breaks loose on earth. The bold judgments are poured out. And so now we begin to get some further insight from this passage. Revelation 10 verse 7 gives us some insight. And remember what it said there. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, so we're given some insight into what just has begun to happen. But he's about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. As he declared to his servants, the prophets. Well, what did God speak to the servants and the prophets about? He spoke to them about the kingdom, did he not? And so the word finished here, teleo in the Greek, means to to bring about an end, to conclude, to, to cause to expire, to fill up. And so what God was speaking about with regard to the age of grace is now done. It's filled up. It's over. And the kingdom that that God had always spoken about, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, my kingdom. And in fact, he said, thy kingdom, God, come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as you see this heavenly scene, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies is opened and all of a sudden, that temple's coming back to earth. The naos in heaven. The glory of God will descend. If that happened today, none of us would be able to withstand the glory of God. For no one can see God and live. And so the Lord begins to pour out his glory on this earth. Remember that in chapter 10, we saw an internal kingdom that's spiritual. And we now begin to see this picture of the external, the physical kingdom that will one day come. There's going to be a literal reigning of Christ in Jerusalem, in that temple that we already saw that will come. And so you have this rebuilt temple. It's now reclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will rule and reign literally from Jerusalem. That literal kingdom set up here on this earth. For unbelievers, this trumpet will sound, and it's the sounding of judgment. For believers, it will sound, and it'll be peace and joy and the blessings of God here on this earth. Anybody ever feel like you kind of got gypped being born now? I do. You know, I look back at the way the world once was. I, you know, I would have loved to have been with Lewis and Clark coming across the, the, this great nation you know, on horses and canoes. And, you know, I love wildlife. I would have liked to have seen it before we crammed it into little, you know, places all over the country. You realize that at one point in time, we had 50 million buffalo roaming the United States of America. 
What do we got now? 50? They're all in a little pen in Wyoming. Yeah, we've kind of messed up the world, but God is going to come back. Jesus will come back and he's going to cause, in essence, a, a renewal of this earth because we did get gypped. I, I can't wait to be traveling around with Jesus with perfect righteousness and a renewed earth where righteousness reigns. It's going to be peace and joy and beauty and people... So much of the vast damage that's been done to our planet has been done so in the name of greed, amen? In in the indulgence of a handful for the cost of the many. That'll be over. As you recall these woes, in chapter 8, we read about the three woes, and it says there in verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. And so these three woes, these remaining ones, remember the first woe spoke of those demonic locusts who came out of of the abyss and they began to, to sting mankind but, but they didn't really inflict death. They just simply inflicted pain, so much pain that people wanted to die but didn't die. And so God is trying to get mankind's attention. He's saying, look, I'm going to do something. You'll wish that you were dead, but it's so you have time to think. And so much of what God allows in our lives from that perspective is for that reason. He allows painful things in our lives so we have time to think and, more importantly, time to repent. And say, God, you were right, I was wrong. And I'm making that turn, that 180, that about face that says, I was over here, now I want to be over here. I was unrighteous, I want to be righteous. And do the right thing. That pain, people would do that for death, in essence, we saw in that chapter, would take a holiday for five months. People would want to die and couldn't die. The second woe is that 200 million man army that's going to come and kill a third of the earth's remaining inhabitants. So now remember that with that third, with what we've already seen in the book of Revelation, now half of the world's population is dead. Today that would be 3.6 billion people or so. Gone. Erased. And since that, we have been waiting for this third trumpet to sound. And remember that chapter 9 reminded us and told us exactly why God was doing these things. No one will ever be able to blame God. Well, you didn't tell me. Because it says there in chapter 9 and verse 21, For they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Sin continues to reign on this earth. The only difference between those things which we clearly can see as sin and what we call those sanitized sins of the saints is that they're disguised. They're still sin. Stealing things in the name of Jesus is still stealing things. It's not holy stealing, it's just stealing. You see, killing people for ungodly reasons is still killing people, even though we do it in the name of God, i.e. jihad. That is still 
murder. And so because of that, we've been waiting. The world had been waiting. And now we get this point in time, which I believe will happen. Most of these things will unfold in those last three and a half years, culminating with the Battle of Armageddon very near the end of those three and a half years, the seventh year. But the Lord Jesus is going to come and reclaim the kingdom that's rightfully his. He purchased that ticket, if you will. He bought this world with his own broken body, his own shed blood on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. Verse 15 reminds us, and then the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. It's hard for us to to understand. It's hard for us to imagine that this is actually Satan's world. But the Bible clearly declares that. There, If you look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, and it's this time when Jesus was tempted, when he was tested uh, by Satan himself. Remember what Satan did. The devil took him up onto an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the, notice it, plural, kingdoms of this world and their glory. Maybe he was showing him the Roman kingdom. Maybe he was showing him the Greek kingdom. Maybe he was showing him the Persian kingdom. Maybe he was looking into the future to the Chinese kingdom or the kingdom of the United States of America or maybe the kingdom of Tsarist Russia to some kingdom somewhere, someplace, somehow, to the kingdom of mammon, of wealth. Satan takes Jesus and says, all of these kingdoms are yours. If you bow down and worship me, the only way that Satan could have done that is if those kingdoms were actually under the control of Satan. They had to be a legitimate offer, in other words, Hard for us to understand that. It would be empty, it would be hollow. And so those earthly kingdoms that are being spoken of, the ones that still exist today, are the kingdoms of power and passion and possessions and position. They are those things which the world gravitates towards, which the world hungers after, which the world kills one another for, which the world seeks to have, and and which the world literally worships, because many people worship the kingdoms of this world. Now, if you don't believe that, there are many ways that you can understand it. You can simply drive to Hollywood and drive through the hills and look at the countless mansions where tens and fifties and hundreds of millions of dollars and go, why does anyone on this earth need that much wealth? And the answer is, nobody does. And people worship it. They kill one another for those things, both literally and figuratively. And it descends from there all the the way to the bottom of the proverbial human heap, if you will. People kill kill each other for pieces of meat. People kill each other for a handful of dollars. How many stories have we read where someone's gone into a 
a mini-mart in the middle of the night and shot and killed a store clerk and and gotten $25 because that's all that was in the till. That person's life was worth $25 to somebody. That's the kingdoms of this world. And God's not happy about the kingdoms of this world, but he is being patient with us right now. Satan in Luke's gospel throws an interesting twist on the same uh, passage of scripture, but from Luke's perspective in Luke chapter 4 verse 6, the devil said to him, all authority I will give you and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, Luke records. That happened in Genesis when Adam sinned. Adam had the choice, believe God, live and never sin, or disbelieve God and die and make sin a reality for all of mankind. The world was handed over to Satan. And just so you don't think anything bad about Adam, you would have done exactly the same thing if you'd been there. Wouldn't matter who showed up, though I am going to kick him when I get there. <laughs> it is a theological conundrum to try and, you know, is Adam saved? Yeah, probably. But barely, if by fire. Satan's current rule is made manifest in this world. You can see it. Ephesians chapter 6, we studied it not long ago. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. If there were not wiles of the devil, scripture wouldn't be saying, well, put on the armor so that you can stand against his wiles. If he had no capacity uh, to, to work in your life, my life, the life of this world, we wouldn't be told to armor up against it. Fact of the matter is he can and does. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the rulers of the darkness of this age. So the darkness of this age is ruled, and it's ruled by Satan. We would love to think, and sometimes we wrongly assume that because God is sovereign, and he is, he's absolutely perfectly sovereign. Let me make that clear. He lacks no sovereignty. He is quite capable. He could defeat Satan right here, right now, this very moment, put him in the pit. It'd be all over. He could do that, but he's chosen not to. God's power under control has allowed the age of grace, and we have been given this time of long-suffering with God, where God is saying, that's not what I want. I'm giving you the power of choice, and in that choosing, your, your love relationship with me is legitimized. You see, when you make choices to love someone, you're legitimizing that love. If you're forced into it, you do not love that person. And you do not love if you were forced into loving God. It would just simply be a matter of choice that was made for you. That's not love. Love by its very definition must be volitional. It has to be your choice for it to be real. All that Jesus had to do in those passages was to bow down and worship Satan, and Satan would have given the world to him. 
He didn't actually have to go to the cross in that sense. No, nobody was behind the scenes. God wasn't going, well, son, you just got to go. Now, in one sense, it was mapped out from before the foundations of the world that he would go, but Jesus wasn't forced to go. He went because he loved us, and he loved us to the uttermost. He finished what he set out to do, but the Romans couldn't have nailed him to that cross had Christ not wanted to be nailed to that cross. He created the universe. He certainly could have wrestled his hands away from some Romans. He, he, he could have made his hands impenetrable to the nails. See some big burly Roman centurion over there with a nail in his hand and a hammer raised back and slams into the nail and bounces off and knocks out the centurion. Christ could have done that. God the Father could have said, enough. And every time somebody slapped Jesus, they dropped over dead. He is sovereign God. He could have done those things. But because he loves us, he didn't. Because he loves us. Love is what put Jesus on Calvary's cross. Not a plot by the Jewish high priest. Not the power of the Roman Empire. It was love. Paying the price for your sin and mine. Speaking of Satan in John chapter 14... Jesus said this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So Jesus was saying, look, there's going to come a time when the ruler of this world, I'm going to go away, I'm going to be preparing a mansion for you, where I am you can be also, so if you take your last breath, don't worry, you know where you're going, you know the way. And so he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. You're okay. But Satan right now is the rebel ruler of this world. Its systems, its current kingdoms. But Satan's rule is very limited. Amen? Psalm 24, 1, I love it. The earth is the, earth is the Lord's, amen? That's true. He's allowed a a rebel ruler for a time. But make no mistake, the earth is the Lord's. And all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in. So make no mistake, just because Satan is ruling doesn't mean it's his. It's the Lord's. He's actually a despotic ruler. He's come into power, it's much like the despots of our world that we've seen throughout time pretty soon the people rise up and remove that ruler pretty soon God himself will rise up and remove that ruler amen you see those things are certain Satan's time is limited I want you to notice something in our passage this this phrase Uh, have become, these kingdoms that have become, is in the Arist uh, active indicative tense in the original language, and it describes a future event as though it's already happened. It's something that we don't have in our English language. And so when it says have come, it is a fact that it has come. 
It, it's not will, not might. If certain things line up, it may be going to happen. It is going to happen. It is a foregone conclusion about which there is zero doubt. So this kingdom that will become Christ's kingdom is a sure thing. Hallelujah. Because when you look at the world, you might be thinking, I'm not so sure it's a sure thing. Today, tonight, doesn't really look like that at times. But it's a sure fact, just exactly as Zechariah 14.9 reminds us. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. Right now there's all kinds of people that think they have a, you know, some type of an inroad to God. And there are many ways to find him. That's why Jesus made the distinction, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Right now there's a lot of roads Last Sunday night, we know that there's a broad road. We know there's a narrow road. We know there's a broad gate and a narrow gate. We know there is a hard way and an easy way. There's only one kingdom, ultimately, and that's the kingdom of our God. Those 24 elders begin to bow down. They're leading the way, in essence, in this song of praise that's saying, look, it's happening. It's finally underway. The kingdom of our God has come. I can't wait for that day. I had one of those days today where I'm just, nothing really bad, but everything was like, oh, that's the effect of sin. Oh, that's somebody's life that's messed up because they, they didn't walk with Jesus. That, that's somebody who made the wrong choices because they were following the wrong leader. It was just one thing after another thing after another thing. And I'm just like, Lord, just put him in the pit. One day, that's exactly where he's going. And I don't believe it's too long from now. You see those priests begin to give us a little bit of a, of a picture, those elders that were in heaven First Chronicles chapters 23 and 24, we know that David actually assigned the priest specific duties for about a couple of weeks each, and they would go in and they would speak a specific part of Scripture. But the point was they were given those duties for a couple of weeks so that they could successively never, ever, 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 ever at the temple was there a time when the word of God was not going forth. It was always being spoken. So for two weeks at a time, someone was constantly speaking forth the word of God. And this praise in heaven is like that. The word of the Lord is going forth and now it's finally coming to fruition. Back in chapter 4 of this, this book, of the book of Revelation, the 24 elders fell down before them and those who sat on the throne and they said, Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. In chapter 5 again, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp. They're, they're beginning to praise in heaven. It's like they're warming up the band. It's like when you get here early and the worship team is warming up, they're kind of running through the praise songs that we'll be, we'll be worshiping with as we come to service together. It's the picture they're warming up in heaven. God is going to send Jesus back to this earth and all of heaven is erupting in praise because it's finally going to happen. The service is about to get underway. 
The doors are open. The lion of the tribe of Judah is about to descend from heaven back to earth to fight that final battle and to kick Satan's backside. Amen? I don't know if that's spiritual or not, but I want to see it. He's, he's going to do him in. He's going to grab him by the neck and say, enough. The worship of God begins now. It's going to continue and escalate as we head towards eternity. As we start at some point in time, when, when all of the believing saints of all time come back from heaven to join with the saints who received Christ on earth during the tribulation, and we become this gigantic group of ruling priests and kings before a God and Jesus is ministering to us during the millennial reign in Jerusalem and we literally for a time have heaven here on earth. You talk about a worship service as we're literally in the presence of God. You see the result of real worship is spending time with Jesus. And as you spend time with Jesus, you want to worship him more. As you know him more, you want to worship him more. That's what happens. And so the worship grows. It escalates. That's why James reminds us there in James chapter 4 that as you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Because you're, you're growing more into the image of Jesus. As you resist, as you hang out with Christ, the devil's going, man, I don't want to be anywhere near that. We draw near in that commitment. King David himself crying out, as for me, I'll see your face in righteousness. There in Psalm 17, he's just going, look, these things are, are, are the wonderful benefits of being near the Lord. Anybody ever kind of feel like you're further away from the Lord than maybe you were a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, we kind of ebb and flow while we're on this earth, don't we? Have some event in your life, maybe something, some besetting sin comes back as the book of Hebrews there in Hebrews 12 reminds us we have those sins that sometimes they're just there and we struggle and we agonize and we fight with them. We're victorious in them, but they just drive you absolutely insane And you have that moment, you're just like, oh, I just want to be in the presence of the Lord. I want to get over that. I never want to think about those things that happened when I was 10 years old. I don't ever want to think about them again. I don't want to go through that pain. That day's coming. Be encouraged, be strengthened. And then a song of praise erupts in verse 17 through 18. And we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Because you've taken your great power and reign. Finally, you've taken your power from heaven. You've come back to earth and you're actually reigning. Satan's reign is over and Christ is reigning on this earth. You see, in chapter 5, we had a song of redemption. The price was paid for you at the cross, amen? Paid for me at the cross, amen? 
See, we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. We're, we're good to go. We believed on his name. We are his children. We are saved. That song of redemption is because the ransom on your life and mine was paid by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I can now walk in the grace of God because I've confessed my sins and he has been gracious and faithful to forgive and to cleanse. But this is the song of praise. The Lord's going to come again. The millennial reign will ensue. The establishment of righteousness on this earth. You see, we have a tough time coupling that with the wrath of God. Because our wrath is never righteous wrath. Our personal wrath as human beings is, is almost always associated with anger, with, with some type of uh, emotion that can be stirred up or boiled down, be high one day and low the next. It's because Scripture clearly says that uh, the, the judge of this world is not us, it's the Lord, and that his righteousness is perfect and our righteousness is not perfect. His righteousness is 100% perfect. So when God pours out his wrath on this earth, it's going to be 100% in righteous love. There will be no other choice. He will reach the end. There will be nowhere to go but there. God's not a respecter of persons. It's going to be fair. Nobody is, is going to be cast into outer darkness. They will not have a case against the Lord. Well, you just didn't ever send anybody to speak to me. That'll never happen. Why? Because God's not willing that any should perish. He wants all people to come to repentance. And he will do something. How he does that, we sometimes do not know. Because we see things from a human perspective, don't we? We look at the world, well, I don't know that that person ever, ever heard the gospel. You can be absolutely assured that because God's desire is that all men be saved, he will have done something to see to it that all men have the opportunity to be saved. Because if he doesn't, he's not God and we shouldn't worship him. If he allows people to be born only to be damned, I couldn't love a God like that. If children are born and they perish eternally because they weren't baptized into some church somewhere and, and that causes them to be lost for all eternity, I could never love a God like that. So I don't believe he does those things. And I think scripture bears witness. The life of David, his son, born in adultery, by the way, to Bathsheba. David said, I shall not see him on this earth, but one day I shall see him face to face in heaven. That child wasn't baptized because baptism didn't even exist. That child never had a confirmation, wasn't christened. Never went to church one day in his life. But you're going to meet him in heaven. Because God desires all men to come to the knowledge of repentance to be saved. And you can be sure that God takes care of the innocent. You need not worry about it. Why? Because one of the greatest, I believe, of God's amazing characteristics is that he's long-suffering. Second Peter chapter 3, a familiar passage to all of us. For he's not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, as you and I count slackness, as we would say, well, he's just a slackard. You know, 
I don't know what to do with this whole God guy because, you know, he hasn't fried the world yet. He hasn't accomplished that. Tells us why. Because he's long-suffering toward us and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. One day God's going to say, we're done. But until then, he's being gracious and kind and long-suffering. Make good use of it. Make good use of the time. Because it's not going to last forever. You see, people are respecters of persons, and people can be bought. And people do make caste systems and class systems, and people do say, well, if you do this or do that, if you go here and you belong to this, you'll be saved. The mere fact that God says what he says and does what he says and means what he says tells me that the only thing that you need to do on this earth to be saved is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It's not about church attendance. If you are saved, you're going to go to a Bible-believing church. If you know the Lord, you're going to participate in baptism because you want the world to know, look, I'm one of God's kids. But those things don't save you. You see, we're respecters of persons. In fact, Jeremiah reminds us, or in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? But the Lord searches the heart. The Lord knows what's in there. He says, I test the mind. And even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings, the Lord's going to be able to look and go, that person right there was actually a sheep. He's not going to make a mistake. (laughs) Man, I messed up again. That's actually a goat. No, God will be perfect in his judgment. When did the nations become angry with God? Psalm 2 gives us a little bit of insight into this. And as we wrap this up, It says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot vain things? In Psalm 2, verse 1, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the reason that the nations rage is because they have rebelled against God. That's why there is war That's why there is hatred. That's why there is strife. That's why there is animosity. That's why we don't all get along is because the nations of the world have raised their hand against God and say, we will not follow you. And so don't be surprised when the nation that we all know and love, if we do not turn from our current direction and repent before the Lord, that the Lord will put us in the category of those who have raised their fist against God and we will suffer the consequences of doing so. Because he's just, he's fair, he's equitable. You see, the reason for that rebellion is because we want to do things our way. Now remind yourselves that these people who are on the earth have just watched the Antichrist kill Moses and Elijah. And they're they're sending gift cards to each other and presents. Happy Dead Witnesses Day, remember? 
It gives you an idea how hard the hearts of man can be. These guys have been supernaturally sustained while people have been stoning them, bombing them, shooting them. Who knows what's going to be happening to them, but they're going to live. And then finally they're going to be murdered. And the people are going to rejoice over it. All they're going to be doing is preaching Christ and him crucified. And they're going to be murdered and people are going to start handing out cards. That's how hard the hearts of men actually are. Psalm 2 goes on to say in verse 4, For he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He's going to look at the world and say, You had your chance. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I encourage you to read that whole psalm. The Lord's warned us. He said, look, don't do these things. James actually reminds us, again, of where these wars, why these things happen to us. It's utter selfishness. That's why they're happening now. It is selfishness that causes these things. It's the love, service, and worship of self. You can candy coat it all. You can say it's economic inopportunity. You can call it what you want. At the end of the day, it's selfishness. It's mankind desiring to live for and service himself, ourselves, collectively. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? Aren't they internal? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You you see, God's going to fix that. Finally, one day, God is going to set a king over this earth. Can't wait. Amen? That's what Psalm 2 says in verse 6. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. Christ himself will break that rebellion. Everyone who follows after the enemy one day is absolutely going to pay the price for it. David, through his lineage, was promised these things in Second Samuel there in chapter 7. And it says there in verse 16, For your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. One day the Lord Jesus is going to actually rule and reign from his rightful throne on his rightful earth, from his rightful city, the city of peace, Jerusalem. You see, as we sit here tonight, we're like, well, that can't happen. There's no temple. Well, it's because there's a coming temple. Verse 19 says, And then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. And there were lightnings and noises and earthquakes and thundering, great hail. All those things happened. That's because the Lord is saying, look, I'm coming back. Time's up. Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian Christians, he reminded us, I has not seen nor heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man there in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. 
which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed to those to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man, except the spirit of man which is in him. And even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. We don't know what heaven's going to look like, but we know that heaven's going to one day come right back here to earth. Jesus will rule and reign. And so his chapter, this chapter opened with the false temple in Jerusalem is going to end with the true temple in heaven. And that is our lot in him, amen? That true temple, that which is internal right now is going to become external. That which is invisible is going to become visible. That which was figuratively seen in heaven will be literally seen in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign on this earth. The sovereign king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the naos that is currently in heaven will be on this earth. And I can't wait. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? So worship team makes their way back up here. I want to make sure we're going to have the pastor's prayer team come forward. And if you're here tonight and you've never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you see the only way to see God's kingdom And have it be a good thing is to know the king that's coming. And that's a free gift. All you have to do is profess him as Lord. Invite him in. Ask him to forgive your sin. To cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you'll be saved. And so as the pastors come forward, if that's you, please do not leave this building without inviting Jesus Christ into your life. You can do it where you sit. But scripture is clear, if you confess him before men, he will confess you before our Father who is in heaven. And so that public profession of faith is something that God honors. So I want to encourage you, receive Christ and be set free from the bondage of sin and death. For the rest of us, time is short. The clock is ticking. Will it be tomorrow? I hope so. Might be years from now. I I don't know. I don't imagine. I I can't even fathom how the Lord is going to delay much longer. But I know this. When he comes, when Jesus comes to this earth, we're going to see him in his glory. And I can't wait for that day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful tonight for those of us who know you and love you, who desire to serve you, who called you Lord, called you Savior, who have given you our lives as living sacrifices. God, we honor you. We honor you, Jesus, tonight. We pledge our allegiance to our King. We say we will love you, we will follow you, we will serve you. And so God, please take our our humble sacrifices and use our lives for your glorious purposes. And we pray for anyone here tonight that does not know you. God, would you right now by your spirit cause them to understand and know the good news of the gospel. Would you cause them to receive that good news with gladness. And so Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you. 
And all God's people said these things by saying, Amen. Amen.